We're continuing our verse-by-verse study of Zephaniah. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Zephaniah chapter 2, please. Zephaniah chapter 2. Again, the natural division of the book of Zephaniah falls into three portions. The announcement of the great day of judgment for the world, uh, the world as well as Judah in chapter 1. It goes all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. And then the call to repent to Judah plus the pagan nation's judgment in chapter 2, verse 4 to chapter 3, verse 8. And then finally, the promise of restoration to Israel after the judgment of the 70 years in chapter 3, verse 9 through 20. But you could also divide it to include Judah with the pagan nations, beginning chapter 2, due to the fact that she is living an idolatrous pagan lifestyle like the Gentile nations, even as Amos includes her with the pagans. So God addresses her as such. So this section of judgment against the pagan nations are said to be mostly poetry, um, except for chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, which is prose. So you have a lot of uh, poetry within the Bible, the book of um, of Psalms, uh, Proverbs, you have a book of Job, Ecclesiastes, which consider poetry, and you have portions of poetry and that are in uh, some of the prophets, and, and this section is, uh, is one of them. Let me begin here, chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, we have the day of the Lord and uh, repentance for Judah. Verse 1 says, gather yourselves together, yes, gather together. O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued, or the day passes like the shaft, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And so the invitation of repentance to Judah here is given in verse 1. This is a double imperative command. Gather yourselves, marked by the emphatic importance of their obedience. Interesting that God constantly calls people to repentance or to service, whatever it is. And um, he commands all to repent because... He is a creator, but he doesn't force us to repent. And that's the thing that we must understand. Sometimes people just live their Christian life just like almost Greek determinism. Well, if God really uh, wanted me to repent and if it's my, I'm part of that, then it'll happen. No. If God forced you to repent when you don't want to repent, then, then he would be forcing you to do something you, want, you didn't want to do. That would be unjust. God makes the invitation, and God commands to repent, but he doesn't force people to repent. You as a parent command your son to obey, and though you may force him to obey, if it's not of his own free will, he may be do what you tell him to, 
but you're going to know that his heart's not in it, right? And so the only you really know of your son or your daughter loves you if their obedience is out of love and they have the right attitude. Then it's meaningful because you know it's coming from their own heart. Now, if that's the case with us, how much more with God? Now, you and I don't know the heart of our sons and daughters. God knows everything. Nothing takes him by surprise or he's not ignorant to everything. And yet as powerful as he is, he allows us to make certain choices. Even though the choice may be a bad choice and it breaks the heart of God, once again, he honors free will. He told Adam and Eve, the day you eat, you should surely die. Now, when he gave that warning to Adam and Eve, do you believe that God didn't know that they were going to make the wrong choice? Of course he knew. But he has to give the free will to honor the choice. Otherwise, that's not free will at all. If you give parameters and you say, now don't go out of the yard to your son. I'm going to leave for an hour to the store. When I come back, I want to see you here. I don't want you to go anywhere. And you come back and say, oh, look, my son loves me. Oh, he hasn't left the porch at all. And you look over there and you've, you've got him chained up to it. You've got him tied up to the porch. That would make you happy? That would think he was obedient? But if you told him not to leave the porch and you put a camera and you came back and you saw that he didn't leave the porch, that would please you. Because he exercises on free will. And God does that to us. He gives us free will. The problem is that once we exercise our free will, if we exercise in the wrong way and we get ourselves in trouble or bring trouble in our life, then we want to blame God. Why didn't God stop me? Why didn't? Well, he's, once again, you're not a robot. And somehow we want to hang other people or hang God out for our sins. No, I am responsible for every decision I ever made in my life. No one ever forced me to smoke, to drink, or to do whatever I did. I chose to do it. And so we have to own up to our sin and cast ourselves on the mercies and the grace of God. He's faithful in that. And so here again, the root word of the phrase gathered together means um, literally stubble. They were about to be cast into the fire of God's judgment. This command was to turn from sin and to return back to God, to repent from their sinful state. The word repent is to change your mind, to turn around, metanoia in the Greek. Here, Hebrew is a different word, but it basically means the same thing. And God knew the nation as a whole would not repent, but there would be individuals that would repent. The nation is done to an extent. Seven years captivity is going to come, but he knows that some people will repent. Now you heard the gospel, others heard it with you. The majority of them did not repent, but you repented. And maybe somebody else. And you say, why me? Well, because you made a decision. You were open to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You were open to God's speaking to you. And you saw yourself in the light of God and it wasn't a pretty sight and you agreed with God that you were a sinner in need of salvation and forgiveness and you asked him to forgive you. The others didn't think it was true of them or 
they figure, well, uh, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. Right now, you know, I've got a girlfriend. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Whatever, you know, I'm enjoying partying. And they just put it off. Once again, it's a choice, right? And, and what appeared to be, well, you know, I'll put it off the next week. Or, you know, I'm doing this this year. turns into 40-year life away from God. When it could have changed their life completely. But again, it's choices. So some would turn to God. The nation of Judah was uh, addressed by her corrupt condition or undesirable nation. Undesirable means no longer, no longer uh, yearning after. There's no attractiveness to her anymore because of her state of, of corruption and sinfulness. That's what the world does. It destroys our character and everything. You see a beautiful young lady, just innocent and pure, and they're just smiling on their face and all that. And after a while, if they become corrupted and they become like the world, then there's, there's not an attractiveness of that innocence anymore. All that's taken away from them. Or from a young man that's naive and innocent, and then they become corrupted. This was the picture of Judah. Judah had acted like an unfaithful, adulterous wife by her whoredoms. God, through Jeremiah, recalled the kindness of her youth in Jeremiah 2, 1 through 3, the love of her betrothal and how she pursued God in holiness in the wilderness those early days. Jeremiah six fifteen says, were, uh, were they ashamed when they had committed abominations no they were not at all ashamed nor did they know how to blush he says this another time only twice in jeremiah when's the last time you blushed or you saw someone blush today in our society it's a lost art we have been so exposed to such such filth and such uh, extreme things that there's no blushing in our society. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord Yahweh. And so the urgency is marked by the limited time. Look at verse 2. Zephaniah used uh, now the word before three times, giving emphasis um, to the importance of the time left for repentance. There's not much time left. This is believed to be at Josiah's reform around 621 B.C. We cannot be sure. The first siege of Jerusalem is 606. If that's true, it's only about 15 years that are left. 15 years fly real fast. I gave you the illustration a week ago. It's like we're going to celebrate next Sunday. 15 years of 9-11. Can you believe that? Fast. That's all the time that Judah had left, if, that, if our date is right. Zephaniah warned, emphasizing the decree. is issued. A proclamation of Judah's destruction being brought to birth by the hand of God. Because God's holy. She, as an unfaithful wife, had 
given herself away and gone after other gods. It was going to be by the hand of Babylon, the instrument. Um, 605, 606, 596, 586, three sieges, 20 years. But it was through Babylon but by the direct hand of God. It was his chastening. And so Stephaniah warned, emphasizing the severity of the judgment by God's fierce anger for his displeasure, breaking the covenant of Sinai. The word before, as we noted, speaks of the short time before the fulfillment. The phrase fierce anger there indicates the heat of God's burning displeasure, breathing through the nose very hard. Because he's holy and he can't look upon sin with some kind of permission or acceptance or condonance, then he, he has to judge sin. Habakkuk the prophet gave us the same thing. He's a pure life to behold evil. And so they were given over to idolatry, sacrificing their children to the arms of Molech, as we've seen through the scriptures. Zephaniah 1, 2 through 5, uh, 1, 8, also 3, 4. And so they had taken up with these pagan practices sacrificing their children. And Zephaniah warned, emphasizing as the horrible prophetic day of God's anger there in verse 2, the day of the Lord. Remember, it has a two-fold meaning, short-term and long-term. The short-term was the Babylon, Babylonish uh, captivity coming. Long-term-wise, it's the day of the Lord in the seven-year tribulation that will hit the earth. First three and a half years, false peace. Last three and a half years, such tribulations as the beginning of time, that has never has been. It's, Jesus said it would be better to die than to live in those days. And so the short and long-term prophecy of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of gloom, darkness, day of judgment, day of God's wrath. Romans 5, 9. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible, I believe, teaches that God will remove his church seven years before the second coming. In those seven years, he will pour out his wrath upon an ungodly world. And as he's pouring out the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, or the vials, whichever translation you have, they will not repent of their sin, of their sorcerers, their fornication, of anything, as we've read in the book of Revelation over and over again. You would think that things get bad enough, people will repent. He says they won't. And so people's hearts get hard with time. The day of the Lord is the uh, central theme of Zephaniah appearing seven times in chapter 1, verse 7, 8, 10, 14, 18, and here in chapter 2, verse 2. You'll hear it again in chapter 3, verse 8. The word anger again here is with the idea of patience and long-suffering of God with Judah's unfaithfulness and evil. So no one can ever fault God and say, you know, you, you just didn't have patience with me. You just didn't give me a break. You know, you just, all you do is find fault in me. You'll never be able to say that to God. Not one person. When God says, here's a line, and you've passed it, you know that God has done everything in terms of being patient, trying to reach an individual, and then judgment comes. In verse 3, the benefit to the righteous who seek God will be to be hidden from his wrath. The context of seeking the Lord is in repentance. 
He's just spoken about the judgment coming to the whole world in Judah in chapter 1. All you meek of the earth refers to those who would be hearing the message and repent of themselves of their guilt before God. Poverty of spirit. Realizing they don't deserve salvation, but God is offering it to them and they repent. And therefore they continue to uphold truth and justice because God is living in them and through them. They were seeking righteousness and humility to do right towards their fellow man, having the proper view of self, sinful, rebellious. You know, in the world we have a warped concept of ourselves. Either we think too highly of ourselves or we believe it peop- well, everything people say about us. But when you become a Christian, you look at the Word of God, you get a first view of yourself, of who you really are. Because now you measure yourself against God, not against somebody else. All of a sudden, you're not as hot as you think you were. Because God's perfect. The epitome of holiness. And when you look at the Lord and you compare yourself to Him, you realize how gracious He is, how merciful He is, how patient He is. Because if you were God, you would not put up with you. And you know that. And so it's always good to be in light of the gospel so you get a proper perspective about what's going on in your life and who you are. The potential benefit is declared. It may be that they would be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Some in the Babylonian captivity, others through the captivity, others were left in the land. And then long-term-wise, the great tribulation, it will be the same. God will protect Israel in the city of Petra, Isaiah 16, 1, Revelation 12, as she will flee to the wilderness under the heavy hand of the Antichrist. And God will provide and take care of her. And as he comes in the second coming, he'll gather the remnant of Israel from all of the world, the four corners of the earth, if you will. And so you and I are hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3 3 says. Because Christ died in my place, he died for me, and he paid the price of my sin. So the Father sees me in the Son, Christ Jesus, by grace through faith. Notice in verse 4, on down all the way to chapter 3.8, now you have the judgment of the nations. Um, There are many lists of judgments against the Gentile nations, the pagan nations, and the prophets. You have Jeremiah um, in his fourth division, the collection of prophetic judgment on the uh, surrounding Gentile nations, uh, chapter 45 to 51. Um, um, You have um, Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, Hazor, Elam, and Babylon. You have Ezekiel, has the future judgment of the Gentile nations also in Ezekiel 25 to 32. Um, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, or the Philistines, Tyrus, and Zion, Egypt, the judgment of Edom, the judgment of Gog, and Magog. And then you have Amos, remember when we studied Amos, the first two chapters, uh, Damascus, um, you have uh, Gaza, 
Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Judah, Israel. He includes Judah and Israel with the Gentiles because they were living like the Gentiles, so he judges them like Gentiles. You see? Very important. So again, the division here of chapter 2, the first three verses could uh, be, the second division could start in verse 1, if you look at it that way. So here now, verse 4, he says, For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday, and Ekron shall be uprooted. So verse 4, the four cities of the five uh, major cities of the Philistines, the capitals there, are named. You find them in the beginning of Joshua as they enter the land in chapter 13, verse 3. Amos chapter 1, 6 through 8 speaks about them, and Zechariah also 9, 5 through 7. Gath is the fifth city that is not mentioned at all. Some believe because it is um, poetical as parallelism here. And um, it, it throws the balance in the poetical structure. Others point out that it's already under subjugation. Um, this is the area along the Mediterranean seacoast, as you know, west of Judah. The Philistines invaded the area about 1200 B.C., having migrated from Crete. And they were the constant enemies of Israel and Judah. First uh, Samuel chapter 30, verse 14, Ezekiel 25, 16, a good cross-reference. Um, but if you go back all the way to the book of Genesis, in Genesis 10, 14, it says there, Pathrusim and Kashahim, from whom, in parentheses, came the Philistines and Kaphtorium, in Genesis 10, 14. So you see the roots where they came from way back in Genesis, all right? And they were constant enemies against Israel. Now, there's also a play on words here in the Hebrew um, of the fate that awaited um, them. Uh, it's called paranomasia when there's a play on words. It's a certain uh, structure for uh, poetical language. Uh, Gaza is Azah, would be forsaken, Azab. So we, we miss it in the English, but you catch it in the Hebrew. Ashkelon would be desolate, and then the word would match, meaning waste. Uh, there's that poetical balance. And the Ashdod would be driven out, and would be the word would kind of balance it out, expel or reject it. Uh, and at noonday, it speaks there, that would be when they would be unawares because noontime would be the sixth hour, which is the siesta. People think Mexicans made that up. No, it's a Roman custom, the sixth hour. You take a nap, okay? Right when everybody's knocked out and kind of kicking back, they don't expect that that's when God would wipe them out. It would fall upon them. Ekron would be uprooted, and then the word that kind of balances torn out of its soil. So a play on words poetically here. The Gaza Strip, interesting enough, is still a constant problem and danger to Israel today, since the PLO through Yasser Arafat, and then Hamas, and now ISIS, it's constantly the Gaza Strip. 
Now remember, in the land of Israel, you've got the Gaza Strip right here, and, it, and those five cities were right between the uh, empire of Egypt and Syria. So you had the, they were the buffer zone between Israel and all the wars went on in there, okay? But they were constant enemies against Israel. And um, certainly it hasn't changed. It's one of the greatest enemies against them today. A lot of the rockets, Katusha rockets that are, are, are flown in are there from Gaza Strip as the um, Syrians and ISIS and all supply them. And so um, in verse 5, it says, Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nations of uh, Cherethites, the word of the Lord is against you, O uh, Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you so there should be no inhabitants. So in verse 5, the will of judgment for the entire area of the Philistines. The Cherethites on the sequels were related to the Philistines. They were mercenaries and part of David's bodyguard group. In 1 Samuel 30, 14 and 2 Samuel 8, 18, you find that out. The word of Yahweh was against them to leave no inhabitant. God was going to wipe them out. Judgment was going to fall on them. In verse 6 and 7, the sequel shall be pastures, which with shelter for... Um, the shepherds and foals for the flock. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there. In the houses of Eshkelon, they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will intervene with them and return their captivity. And so here again, the coast of the land of the Philistines would be given over to the remnant of Israel after the captivity to feed the flocks. So God would use Babylon to chasten Judah, but also it would judge the Philistine cities. And when he would bring back Israel, the land of the Philistines would be given over to the remnant that came back. Interesting. God would intervene for Israel and bring them back in the 70 years. Now, when Jeremiah was declaring this at the time, he did not even see how that was possible. If you remember, God told him. And then as he was in prison, even though he had declared it, he began to doubt it himself. And the Lord came to Jeremiah in prison and he says, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything impossible for me or too hard for me? It's a rhetorical question. One answer, no. You don't worry how I'm going to do it. You don't worry about the human difficulty in the mind. I'm God. I can do anything. What's impossible for you is not for me. What seems to be an impossible, a difficult situation for you, for me it's not. So we always have to remember that for the equation to be possible, we must always include God. Now, it doesn't mean that I tempt God or I say God's going to do this and God didn't tell me he's going to do it. So I have to make sure that if God tells me, then the responsibility falls on me that I'm saying God told me. Then that's, I'm the one that's wrong if it doesn't come to pass. It's not God. 
All right? And so for God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is difficult. And he makes the proclamation here prophetically before it happens. So when it happens, you can know that God knows the future. Absolutely. That's the benefit of prophecy. Now in verse 8 down to 11, you have the cities of Moab and Ammon that are addressed. They are descendants of Lot and his, by his daughters, by incest, if you remember, uh, as they, they fled from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, as God's judgment fell upon them. That whole area of uh, Moab to the north of the Dead Sea, then you have Oman, then you have Edom in the south. That's all modern-day Jordan. In fact, the capital city of modern-day Jordan is the city of Amman from the Ammonites, okay? So you have that there. So verse 8 says, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Surely Moab shall be like Sodom, and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits. In a perpetual desolation, the residue of my people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. God was aware of the bitter hatred of Moab and Ammon against Israel. Um, Yahweh had heard the reproach of Moab, it says there at the beginning of verse 8. The word reproach means to taunt or to scorn or ridicule and demean them. Jeremiah chapter 48 speaks about it. Amos chapter 2 verse 1 through 3. And um, remember that they were um, related. Um, They were came from Lot. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. Abraham brought Lot with him when God called him out. The Bible never tells us that God told him to take Lot. It seems that Lot was a carnal person. Lot was not completely submitted to God, and there were problems that came in. The Moabites were the descendants of Lot by his oldest daughter, Genesis 19.37. The only thing they remembered to take out from Sodom and Gomorrah was some wine. And that night, the daughters said, let's, let's get that drunk. And because we believe that, you know, all the men, all the uh, men of the earth are, are, are under God's judgment. They're all dead. So there's no other body else. How are we going to have kids? Well, let's, let's sleep with dad. Wow. And so you have the descendants of Lot, a Moab, and Ammonites. Now, Ruth was a Moabitess, Remember? And the Moabites were cursed from the temple of God till the 10th generation. Ruth was of the 10th generation, and she is the great, great grandmother of David. <laughs> and because she went to the 10th generation, God allowed her in. Interesting how God works all those things out. Um, you remember also that um, Moab um, dwelt on the east side again of the Jordan River. Um, south of the Ammonites. It was Ammon, Moab, and then again in the south was Edom. You remember King Balak 
he hired Balaam, the prophet, to come and curse Israel, Numbers 22, 23, and 24. And at first he didn't want to go. He said, no, I can't go. The Lord won't let me go. And so they went back and told King Balak, you know, he won't come. And he sent back more counselors with more persuasiveness and more money offered. And uh, when they got there, um, God told Balaam, don't go. If they come for you, then go. Next thing we read is Balaam's not around. And the angel of the Lord is going to kill Balaam as he rides his donkey on the way. And the donkey sees the angel of the Lord and he goes to one side and Balaam just beats his donkey and get back on track and he does it again, beats him again. Then the donkey crushes his leg up against the crag of the rock and he starts beating him. He says, if I had a sword, I'd kill you. And God opens the mouth of the donkey and says, listen, am I not the donkey you've had all your life? Have I ever been known to do any of this? He was so out of his mind that he talks back. If I had a sword, I'd kill you. And the Lord opens the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord with the sword. And of course, oh, I'll go back, right? He says, you go. But only what I tell you. Which implication is, the angel of the Lord was going to kill him because he didn't wait for the men to come to him. He left before because of the money. Jude gives us that commentary, and so the second chapter of Peter also, the greed of Balaam, the love of money. Okay? He was a prophet of God, gone south. Read the history of him. And so, as you know, those that, whoever God has blessed, he does, they can't curse him. So therefore, matter of fact, Balaam gives one of the most incredible prophecies about the Messiah to come. So people are just instruments of God. You find this in um, Numbers again, 22 through 24. Um, Yahweh had heard the insult of Amon, there in verse 8, the word insult means to revile or to speak disrespectfully, to provoke. In fact, they cut up pregnant women to kill their babies in Gilead, and they occupy Israeli land afterwards. Amos chapter 1, verse 13 and 15 tells us. Jeremiah deals with it in Jeremiah 49, 1 through 6 also. So there was some bad blood, Okay. Uh, though related, they weren't part of the blessing. They weren't part of Israel. And so there was rivalry. There was bad blood. Um, you'd like to have the same thing with Jacob and Esau. Same kind of stuff. By the way, Esau is Edom, and he was on the southern end, on the east side of the Jordan also. Okay, it was modern-day Jordan, all of it. And really, Edom is down there in Midia, where Moses fled to, where Mount Sinai is, not where your Bibles tell you it is, in the Sinai Peninsula. Mount Sinai was not in the Sinai Peninsula. It's in Arabia. Paul tells us that in Galatians, the book of Galatians. So your, your, your Bible maps are wrong to where Sinai is. Okay, It's over in Arabia and Midia, on the east side of the Jordan south, the Arabian Desert. That's Midian. And so, here again, um, 
And there were many other occasions that recorded in Scripture against the animosities of Moabites, the Ammonites, and Edomites also through the Scriptures, Book of Judges, Second Samuel. Uh, in fact, the Book of Nehemiah, when they came back to rebuild the Temple of Gen, you had uh, um, some of the Ammonites that wanted to be part of the work. And, uh, and Nehemiah says, no, you have no, no dealings with us. You have no part of this work. And they got all upset, Tobias, Sambalit, all of them, right? So they started to create trouble. Now, Yahweh took their hatred against his people personally. Notice. Um, verse 8 says, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Maman, in which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. So God sees everything. And now, you, you, the Bible never presents Israel as some saint or that um, they are perfect. But the Bible is very clear that God has chosen Israel. Israel is the apple of his eye. And God takes the responsibility to chasten his own. You as a parent, you... Um, you chasing your son or your daughter, you discipline them or you spank them when you need to. But if your neighbor would step in to try to discipline your child, you would be pretty upset. For you to do it, you're the parent. For someone else to try to do it, they're going to have problems with you then, right? It's the same thing with God. No different. And so the word insult means to revile again and to speak disrespectfully. And again, the Ammonites were also descendants of law by the younger sister in Genesis 19.38. They also again dwell on the other side, as we said. And um, by the reproach and insult here, both nations reproach my people. God says, both of them. They made arrogant threats against their borders, constantly harassing them, provoking them. Um, they were unstable and they, uh, they endangered their national security. Okay? Borders are very important. That's, why, that's one of the definitions of a nation. A nation has borders. You, if you own a house, there are borders to your property that your house is in. You go out to the curb, there should be a public nail on there that marks the border from your front yard and you should have one in the backyard if there's a wall or something. If you lose it, if you can't find it, you go to the city, you get a surveyor, he comes out, he'll show you exactly where your border is. Often, many times, properties that don't even know it and your neighbor has built their wall two feet into your property. Okay, so nations have borders and for people to want to cross that border, they need to have documentation. When they cross without documentation, they're called illegal, not undocumented. All right. Everybody's too politically correct today. Illegals illegal. All of our immigration laws are on the books. We're just not enforcing them 
and America's getting tired. And people are tired of it also. There's a way for immigration. And millions have done it through the history of America. And they've come to America to assimilate. People who come in illegal, they don't come in to assimilate. They come in to do whatever they want and to take over. It's simple. You have a house, right? You invite friends over, right? No, people just can't walk in your house. Would you call them undocumented friends that walked in? Is that what you call them? No. No different. So it's a game the politicians play. All right? At national expense. It's just that simple. Now notice, God promised uh, their extinction. In verse 9, he says, Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, the God of Israel, surely Moab should be like Sodom, the Amman like Amorah, overrun with weeds and salt pits, a perpetual desolation and residue of my people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. So here in verse 9, the word therefore marks the conclusion of God's verdict. God swore by himself, as I live, guarantees the certainty of that judgment and the rightness of that judgment. The identity of the one speaking, the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven, the protector of the nation of Israel. The destruction of Moab would be like Sodom, Ammon, like Gomorrah, Overtaken with weeds and salt pits, a perpetual desolation. It's interesting. The southern coast of the Dead Sea abounds in rock salt. It's believed that Sodom and Gomorrah somewhere down there at the end of the Dead Sea. Buried. The remnant of the nation of Israel would plunder and possess them. And so they did as they returned from captivity again. Again, this is one of the things about the Bible that's an amazing thing. Is that it contains one-fifth of the Bible is prophecy, 20%. There's no other book, no religious book, that steps out in prophecy except for the Bible. Because when you declare you have prophecy, now you're putting yourself at risk to be proven wrong. The Bible prophecies are fulfilled to the T. The number of factors, average of prophecy, seven to eight factors. For just eight prophecies with the number of average factors like that to be fulfilled would be like filling the state of Texas with silver dollars four to five feet, three, four feet deep. Marking one of them, getting a giant blender and stirring him around. Then getting a blind man to go out there and pick the one that you marked with the next. That's just state of them. Jesus Christ will fill over 300 in his first coming. Coincidence? I don't think so. What other book has prophecy? None. Because there's only one book that's God's word. The Bible. 
And so prophecy is very important and many people are moving away from prophecy today. Um, and they're more interested in making people comfortable here instead of warning people of the soon return of Jesus Christ. That's always the heart of the gospel. Jesus came and died for your sins and he's coming again for you. And then he's coming back to judge the world after seven years of pouring out his wrath on the world. That's the message that needs to be communicated in every generation. Today the church is being too culturally, politically correct and they're not preaching the gospel, afraid of being judged or marginalized or even attacked by the government. Remember the disciples, they were threatened in the book of Acts and he says, you judge whether it's right and before God to be silent or not. He says, we will but speak the word of God. Every generation has had that challenge. Every nation that has been persecuted for the gospel, those individuals have had to make a decision. There's people in Iran. You don't realize how many Muslims are coming to Jesus Christ today. One of the greatest outpouring of God's spirit is in Iran. Many coming to the Lord. And they know that they will go to jail. They know that some of them will die. But the history of the church is filled with testimonies like that. God is the only one sufficient for those things. And so, God declared he judged them because of their pride, their reproachful words, and their attitude of arrogance, self-importance against the people. Look at verse 10. He says, this, they, this they, uh, they shall have for their pride, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. There it is again, the captain of the armies of heaven. Isaiah and Jeremiah speak of her pride. Uh, also in Jeremiah 16, 6, 25, 11, um, and then Jeremiah 48, 26, and 29, 30. And it's just that pride that gets us in trouble. Uh, the heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. Uh, seven things does God hate. The first one on the list, pride. Satan fell. What was it for? Pride. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before the fall, Proverbs says. Very, very important. And so the one speaking again is the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. Now, in verse 11, he says, The Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place. Indeed, all the shores of the nations. And so in verse 11 here, God stated his horrific judgment and ultimate worship. As we said this morning, this is a nugget. The first part of it, uh, the word awesome, means to be made afraid. As God would judge them, and judgment would come upon Moab and them for their idolatrous worship. The reference is to reducing to nothing all the gods of the earth. Certainly, uh, the gods of Moabites, the Ammonites, God was bringing judgment upon them short-term wise. Idols are, that are called gods are really nothing. Paul the Apostle speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4 through 6. Um, I, I 
I came out of Catholicism and, you know, I used to pray to idols and you would have statues of Mary or Saint this and Saint that or virgins or this and that. And uh, yet they're nothing but just figurines. They're, they're idols. They, they can't speak. They can't walk. They can't see. They can't hear. So I became just like them, death, blind, and lost, spiritually speaking. Because they're not gods. They cannot intervene. We serve a living God. And so here, the prophetic announcement of the near judgment to come, the Moab and Ammon, uh, and also then the nugget here, long-term-wise, of the ultimate day of the millennial kingdom that we spoke about this morning when all will worship Jesus Christ. The millennial kingdom is a thousand-year reign on the earth. All the nations will worship Jesus. The Gentiles will serve um, the Israel. Um, God will fulfill all his promises to David. Uh, Paul speaks about it in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Uh, the book of Revelation is very clear from chapter 6 to 19 that the only woman there in the great tribulation is Israel. She is one who gives birth to the Messiah. She is the one who flees to the wilderness. The only other woman um, is, that is there is the great harlot of Rome, okay, Babylon. And if you try to make the church either one of those, Israel is pregnant, you'd be insulting God because his bride is a virgin bride. And then the harlot um, in the world is Babylon and she's full of fornication. So you must make sure that you identify the right woman. The church is nowhere in the tribulation or great tribulation for she has been removed by Jesus Christ at the rapture. Paul, Jesus gives us that in um, chapter 14 of John, verse 1 through 3. Paul speaks about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. And John gives us in, uh, first Re in Revelation 3, 10, keep us from the hour that will come upon all earth dwellers. I'm a heavenly citizen. I'm not an earth dweller. I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. And God has not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 9, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. And so we have a great hope in Christ Jesus. And uh, we need to keep our eyes on him. Zechariah 14, 6 through 7, he says, The nations will go up to Jerusalem once a year to worship at the Feast of Tabernacle. And if they don't go, as we said this morning, they will not receive rain. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, The next pagan nation, You Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by my sword. So the judgment would fall on Ethiopia. This is the briefest of the judgments, only one verse. God declares, You Ethiopians also. And God would use the sword to judge them. The areas in the south now... Um, so he has touched the east. Now he's going south uh, towards Egypt, the upper Nile region. The descendants of Cush, the grandson of Noah through Ham, is given to us in Genesis 10.6. Babylon was God's instrument again. Uh, Ezekiel tells us about that, confirming this in Ezekiel 30, verse 4 through 5. Next, we have the judgment of Assyria. So now he's gone east, he's gone south, now he goes north. 
The judgment now is northward. Verse 13, he says, And he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation as a dry as dry as the wilderness. Now, interesting here in verse 13, um, again, he goes north, and Assyria was the ruling empire of that time. It was powerful. It was cruel. It was ruled by Tiglath-Pileser, Saragon, Sennacherib, uh, Asherhaddon, Ashurbanipal, and it was about to be superseded by Babylon. It was coming to an end. And now God was going to begin the time of the Gentiles that would begin with the head of gold that God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar down to Medo-Persia, the shoulders of silver and the arms, to Greece, the belly of brass, and then Rome, the legs of iron. And then there would be a prophetic pause for 2,000 years that we're going through, and then it will start again with the tribulation, and great tribulation, the ten toes, the ten-nation confederacy that will be ruled by the Antichrist. And so this is the time period that we're talking about here. Um, the capital city of Nineveh, notice here, um, the judgment is declared. It's on the Tigris River. We've seen that through Nahum. Um, it would be absolutely destroyed like a dry wilderness. At this point, notice it was still in the future. So we can be sure that Zephaniah spoke these words before 612 B.C. That's when Nineveh was destroyed, okay, by Babylon and the Scythians. The book of Nahum and Jonah give us many of the details. Nahum 1, 2, and 8, and 10, and 3, 15. And then the book of Jonah, as we know. Now the city will become desolate. Uh, uh, verse 14, it says, The herd shall lie down in her midst, every beast of the nations, both the pelican and uh, the... Um, um, Bittern here shall um, lodge on the um, capitals of our, her pillars. Their um, voice shall sing in the windows, and desolation shall be at the threshold, and he will lay bare the cedar work. So total desolation. Now we saw it already in Nahum that God destroyed him. Now he was spared him through Noah. I mean, not through Noah, through Jonah. hundred years later, they went back to sin. So God brought judgment upon them. Verse 15 says, This is the rejoicing city that dwells securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is none besides me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down? Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. Ooh. Nahum, the prophet, gives great detail, chapter 3, on how it would be destroyed and the effects of it. The entire region, even to the present day, has never been developed or flourished, but still bears the judgment of God. Um, the summary statement here in verse 15 of the destruction of Nineveh is given. Notice she thought herself prosperous and safe. 
Always that false sense of assurance. Yeah, I've got control of it. I'm in control. I've got money in the bank. I've got this. I've got it wired. I'm in control. The way I live is not going to affect me. Okay. Buckle up, buckle. Because it will get you sooner or later. She's arrogant in pride. She says in her heart, I am it. There is none besides me. Today, the philosophy of self-esteem has been pushed to such an extreme. Everybody believes in themselves. Everybody just, you know, don't, don't, don't talk like that. I don't want negative vibes and negative energy and all that. And then we're like, like new age. And uh, everybody is living a lie in different things. Facebook. Everybody has their own reality show. Living a lie. You put up the best pictures. You promote yourself. People don't realize all the information they put out there. It's all in the cloud. People can get at it. It will come back and bite you. The less people know about me, the better off I am. Trust me. She did not expect her destruction, how she has become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down. How exact is this when you read the book of Nahum? She is remembered as foolish. Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake their fists. Here's the picture as someone looking and warning a person and they go and do dumb things and they just look and they go... That's the kind of actions we're talking about here. They're foolish. They don't listen. Such would be Babylon. Isaiah 47, 8, 9. Such would be commercial and religious Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. Wow. God's judgment to these heathen nations one by one. God is just. God is holy. God is true to his word. God will not be impatient with you or anyone else. He will go to the nth degree that when he draws that line, judgment is deserved. Judas Iscariot is the best example. Read the Gospel of John. And mark how many times Jesus gave Judas an opportunity to repent over and over and over and over again. And he did not repent. Never believe that God predestined Judas to betray him. That's accusing God of the sin of betrayal to against himself. Prophecy is only declaring the person that would commit that betrayal. Prophecy does not force the man or woman to make that betrayal. Because if God forced Judas to betray him, how can God judge Judas for the sin? God would be unjust, he would be unholy, he would be a liar. So therefore the evil that people do, God knows about it, he declares it before it happens, and when it happens, you know God's the one who declared it. But he didn't force the person to do the evil. And he always gives plenty of time of people to repent before the boom is lowered. So let God be true 
and every man a liar, as Paul says. Pretty heavy chapter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts, Lord. We thank you for tonight. And Lord, we thank you for Zephaniah. And just the prophets that uh, spoke on your behalf. Sometimes knowing who they were writing to and what they were writing about. And other times being completely ignorant and yet faithful to record it, Lord. Father, thank you. Lord, I pray tonight if there's anyone here present that doesn't know you, you would speak to their hearts. Father, those over the internet. As you pray, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you're over the internet, then God is speaking to you. If you see yourself as a sinner in need of salvation, if you believe that Jesus is God who became man and died for your sin, and that he rose from the dead, then that's a miracle of God. Now God says, believing it is fine, but what are you going to do about it? Do you want to repent? Do you want me to forgive you? And if you do, you can say this prayer of repentance, and he will take you at your word, forgive you, make a new creature of you, and give to you eternal life by grace through faith. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you made that decision, we want to welcome you to the family. There's a brother to my right, your left. Mike will meet you there. He'll give you that Bible absolutely free. Share some important things for you. Go answer questions you might have. Pray with you. Give you a hug. You're free to leave, but don't leave here the same way you came in. Lost and dead. Like the prodigal. The prodigal was never born again. Two sons lost. One inside the father's house. The other one outside. There are a lot of people in the church lost. Others outside the church. You must be born again and you will never see the kingdom of God. Let's stand. We'll close in worship. Before you leave, you accept the Lord right over there. I'll be up here for prayer and questions afterwards. Thank you for coming tonight.